Okay, so tonight's problem is the problem of Scripture. And some of you may be thinking, well, I don't have a problem with Scripture. I like Scripture. But if you are not in a Christian worldview, you probably have a problem with Scripture. And so what are some non-Christian ideas of what Scripture is? Non-Christian ideas of what Scripture is. What's that? A set of rules. Okay, very good. A bunch of stories. A bunch of stories. Yep. Lori, you were going to say that? Fairies and fables. Fiction things. Okay. Hello, Menzels. Do's and don'ts. Anybody else? No conspiracy theorists around here? I was really hoping. Ron, you're disappointing me. The scripture was invented by the church to make us believe the Jesus that they wanted to give us, right? Scripture is written by men, maybe, and full of mistakes in it, all that stuff. So what are some implications, then, if these kind of things are true? Well, first and foremost, if the Bible is not the Word of God, that means we cannot know God or know how to be right with God. Those are some pretty big implications, no? No? If the Bible is not the Word of God, that means we cannot know God and we cannot know how to be right with God because that's what the Bible tells us. The Bible is a book that conveys meaning. The authors actually intended a meaning for us to understand and we actually can understand that meaning. My good friend Michael Kruger says, if the Bible can be undermined, then the entire Christian worldview falls apart. It's that important. We have no worldview if the Bible can be undermined. And so, true to our form from last week, let's look at this question of what is the Bible from our three big worldviews, atheism, selfism, and theism. So first up is atheism. And an atheistic worldview would, of course, nobody would be surprised, would say that the Bible is not the Word of God. There's plenty of ink spilled on this subject. Our friend Richard Dawkins had this wonderful adverb, adjective-laden quote. The Bible, he says, is a chaotically cobbled-together anthology of disjointed documents composed, revised, translated, distorted, and improved by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors, and copyists, unknown to us and mostly unknown to each other spanning nine centuries, as you would expect an atheist like Richard Dawkins to say. So he is, there's no possible way that this is the Word of God at all. Why is it not the Word of God? We talked about it last week, right? So atheist, right, they said there is no such thing as objective truth, so therefore why would they submit to a book that we're going to say is objectively true? So an atheist would say objective truth does not, what's that? Exactly. Yeah, if there's no absolutely true deity up there, we're certainly not going to accept his book, so to speak, right? Objective truth does not or cannot exist. Yes, Caleb. What's that? You are exactly right, which is why that argument falls apart. Caleb, on the ball already, if we say that objective truth does not exist, we have just asserted an objective truth. <laughs> and so therefore, it is not logical, and the wheels come off. So that's what an atheist might say, a selfism worldview. They would say the Bible is the word of man, and therefore its truth is squishy. It's a technical term, squishy. It's a term we use in our care group often. The Bible is a word, of man, a word of man, and therefore the truth is squishy. In other words, I believe some of the parts of the Bible, but not all of the parts of the Bible, right? The meaning, then, is what it means to me. And why? We looked at that last week under the world word. What I feel to be true is true. So truth is then squishy and subjective and relative. It's based upon how we feel, or based upon our emotions and feelings, Truth is relative and subjective. What are some of the massive dangers if we have a worldview that says the Bible's truth is subjective and relative? You don't feel like it's true today, right? 
Whatever the Bible might call us to, it's just like, yeah, no, I don't, I don't, think, that's, I don't think that's right. What have we done? We've put ourselves, right, as the arbiter of truth and not truth. Yeah. Last but certainly not least, we have the theistic worldview, which would say that the Bible is, in fact, the Word of God. What do we believe here at Highlands? We have a, a whole section in our doctrinal statement on this. And it says this, We believe in the inspiration and inerrancy of the Scriptures, meaning the Bible, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, is complete in every respect and is the verbally inspired Word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 2 Peter 1. We believe it is without error in the original writings, true and authoritative and sufficient for faith and life. In order to be a member of Highlands Bible Church, you need to say, yes, I agree with that part of the doctrinal statement. So that's where we are. We would line up with a theistic worldview, of course. Some really important words in there. Like the first one, inspiration. The doctrine of inspiration of the, of the Bible. We can go to a couple scripture verses. 2 Timothy 3, very, very famously. 2 Timothy 3, 16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. The Greek there, theonoustos, breathed out. Literally, it's like the only time they make that word. So Paul's like saying this is a special word that means it's God's creative breath. God literally made his word. Right? So when we say inspiration of the Word of God, it says God the Holy Spirit used human authors to write the actual words of the Bible. God used, human, or God used the Holy Spirit to use human authors to write the actual words of the Bible. What does this mean? Does this mean that, that they went into a special room and had some special mojo and they had a special pen and they got into a special trance? And they don't remember anything, and they just went into some weird writing thing, and they don't remember anything that happened. Is that what do you think? What, what, are, what are some thoughts on that? That would be kind of weird, right? What are some thoughts on how God, what did that look like, that God used human authors to write his word? Yeah, Caleb. Yeah, God shaped their lives to give them the experiences that they need to, needed to write the, what he wanted them to. In other words, they had full use of their personality. They had few, full use of their intellect. They had full use of everything. God just inspired them with his Holy Spirit in order to do that. Right? There's another very important scripture verse in 2 Peter 1, which tells us directly... 2 Peter 1 and verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the answer to who wrote the Bible is God. God, the Holy Spirit, wrote the Bible through men, through ordinary men, not supernatural men, not uh, men in a trance. Ordinary men with full use of their faculties and creative powers. The Bible is also inerrant, we had in that definition from our doctrinal statement. In the original writings, and this is important, properly interpreted, they are 100% true in everything they affirm. Is the Bible a manual for how to fix your chainsaw? <laughs> It's a voice from above. Yes, that was an inspired word from the tech booth. It teaches us patience, right? It may not speak into every single thing, right? But it's going to speak how a Christian should live in every single thing, right? So what the Bible claims to say, properly interpreted in the original writings, is 100% true in everything that they affirm. It's inerrant. 
The Bible is also complete. There's no other writings that should have been included in the Bible. There's no missing gospel of Thomas or something that we needed that should have been in the Bible. The Bible is complete, and we'll talk about why that is in a little while. The Bible is authoritative. As it's God's word, it has the authority to command us to obey. See how that follows, though, logically, right? If it is actually God's word from God, then God has authority. God is king of kings. Lord of course, he's, he's a rightful king, so the king speaks, and people need to obey it. So it is authoritative. And also from that definition, a big word, sufficient. We have all we need in it to know God and know how to glorify him. There's nothing else that we need in addition to the Bible to know how, who God is, or how to please God, right? It's not like we have this, but then also we need another book. Or watch this, right? We have this, and also we need church tradition, or we need a priest, or we need a go-between, or we need something else, right? As the error of Roman Catholicism would say. That's what the doctrine of sola scriptura comes in from the Reformation. Scripture alone is the highest authority in the church, right? We don't need anything else other than the Scripture. Now, we wouldn't say that we don't care about other things because I'm going to be calling on other things in a minute. The, the quotes of the church fathers and other things, those are, those are fine to help us understand it, but they're not at the same level as Scripture itself. So in the church, Scripture alone is the highest authority in the church. And I would also add to that the clarity of Scripture. We can understand it with God's help. We hear that sometimes. It's like, I don't understand what I'm reading, so I give up right? And yeah, some of the stuff is hard to understand, but some of the stuff, the really important stuff, is really clear, and we can understand it, especially with God's help. So, questions, comments, thoughts on any of those words? Yes. What about the book of Enoch? What about the book of Enoch? <laughs> there are other books, historical books that were around at that time, such as the Apocrypha, or other gospels in the New Testament time, but they were determined to not be part of the scripture, which we will get to the canon shortly. So in other words, the Lord said, we do not need the book of Enoch to be saved, but if you want to read the book of Enoch, you can read the book of Enoch somewhere else. Just you better compare it to the scripture to make sure it's good. Bob. Um, we could go there and find out because I am not entirely sure what word they used. So please hold on. Talk amongst yourselves. First Peter one twenty. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very common word, pharaoh in the Greek. Uh, it means to bring or to actually, you know, they do use it like if you're going to carry a jar from one end of the room to the other, they're going to use that word. So it's a pretty common word. But Moved, okay. Let's see what, uh, see if another, but, you know, you can kind of see how the Holy Spirit would get them where they need to go. Yeah, both ESV and CSB say carried along. So it's essentially just that there's an outside entity that's taking the writer where he needs to be in order to say what he needs to say in the Scripture, moving them in such a way. Okay. Does everybody else feel this way of everything we just said, right? The theistic worldview, our wonderful doctrinal statement, all of those big words like inerrant and authoritative and... Does everybody else feel this way? Are we all one big happy family? Even in the church of Jesus, are we all one big happy family? No, unfortunately not, right? Um, very unfortunately, there was a 2014, now keep in mind, that was 2014 poll of U.S. pastors. 28% said the Bible is the actual word of God and should be taken literally. 
47% said the Bible is the inspired Word of God, but not everything in it should be taken literally. U.S. pastors. And 21% said the Bible is an ancient book of fables, legends, and history, and more precepts recorded by man. So you can kind of see it lays out very neatly in the, in the uh, theistic worldview or the selfist worldview or the atheistic worldview. But yet, these are, these are pastors. And that's in 2014. So you know it had to got better by now, definitely, in 2014. One in five pastors thought there were a bunch of fables. I would probably say if they thought that, they probably were not preaching. But we can, we can tell. We have the luxury of the interwebs now, and everybody and their mom in their church live streams. And so we can see what other churches, even locally, like <clears throat> mile and a half that way, are preaching. And, and a sermon is about eight minutes long not including a three-minute reading of the Scripture, so you're probably down to about five minutes. And then they're going to jump off and they're going to make a right turn into whatever political agenda that even remotely has anything to do with the passage. So, yeah. Yeah, I would say if, if the pastors are in either one of those other two camps, they're probably not preaching. I mean, they're most certainly not preaching expositionally uh, from a passage. But yeah, it's kind of a distressing little... Uh, figure, right? And so, yeah, this, people definitely do not feel the same way, and especially within the church itself, the Christian church itself, right? But thinking of the, the, the Christian church, the historical Orthodox church has always understood the Bible as God's Word. This is where people lose their minds because they say, no, your church has never agreed on the Word of God. It's like, no, that's not true. The historical Orthodox church of God has always believed the Bible as God's Word. And we've got to stand on that. If we're having a conversation with somebody and somebody says that's not true, it actually is true, and we can back it up. There has been a, 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 a central core of doctrine from the time of the apostles to the time of today, right? Just because people divert from that doesn't mean that the central core doctrine is not there and not <laughs> Hold that thought. We will get there. And so here's some evidence. There's some internal evidence and there's some external evidence. These are actually fun. The internal evidence, if you got your Bibles or you just want to listen, I'm jumping over to First Peter chapter five, or sorry, First Timothy chapter five. This is some internal evidence saying that people, even at this time, understood that the Bible was the Word of God. 1 Timothy 5.18. This is Paul talking. Just, uh, pick it up from 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered of double honor, blah, blah, blah. Verse 18. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Cool. Old Testament. Everybody knows that one, right? He says, this is the Scripture again. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And... The laborer deserves his wages. Anybody else in their Bible, that part is in red? The laborer deserves his wages? What does that mean when something's in red in our Bibles? That Jesus spoke it? So this is Paul writing to Timothy, and he's calling the very words of Jesus, clearly understanding them as what? Scripture. He says, Scripture says this, and he quotes an Old Testament, and he says, Scripture also says this, and he quotes a New Testament passage that Jesus had said. So somehow they had it, somehow they had that already, they had the, the, the writings, and they, you better believe, it's black and white right here, they believed that that was actual Scripture already in it. There's another one, 2 Peter 3.16. Peter talking about Paul. Paul wrote to us according to all the wisdom giving him, given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. And there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Isn't that nice when the Apostle Peter says, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. Which is the ignorant, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Watch this. As they do the other scriptures. 
Peter says, guess what? Paul's writings, we understand them to be scriptures. They're recognizing what they're doing right there, that Paul's writing scripture, which is like, blows the mind. One more, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. These are good ones to have in your pocket when people want to talk about, uh, you know, that nobody thought it was scripture, it was just letters or blah, blah, blah. You can say, no, actually, inside it's it's, it's self-attesting here. 2 Timothy 2, or sorry, what am I? 1 Thessalonians 2, 13, we thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, watch this, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. There's another one from Paul saying, guess what? I'm so happy that when you received the word of God, you recognized it as the word of God, not the word of men. So this is scripture. This is internal evidence that shows the early church believed without a shadow of a doubt that it was scripture and they were they were communicating to each other as such but we also have from the first century the second century and the third century some quotes from our early church fathers from clement of rome in the first century you have searched the scriptures which are true and given by the holy spirit this is first century people second century Arrhenius or Irenaeus of lions All scripture which has been given to us by God is perfectly consistent. Second century. And then my man Origen in the third century. The churches believe these writings to be divine. So we just covered 300 years after the apostles and the church consistently says, no, they're scripture. They're they're from God. They're accurate. They're divine. And so these are good things to have in mind when we're talking about, you know, Is it just the word of men, or is it actually just the word of God? What does the Bible actually say about it? All right. We also have, which we don't have time to go into, but another good idea is what does Jesus say about the scriptures, right? We hit hit that a couple times in Matthew, where Jesus would say, you know, not Moses said, but Jesus would say, God said, right? Okay, well, Jesus thought that the Old Testament was then God's very words, right? That happens a couple times. So what does Jesus say? Think about that. Another important point. Questions, comments, thoughts. All right, let's move on to how we got the Bible. Some basics, of course. How many different authors? That's not up there. Oh, darn it, it is up there. How many different authors do you think wrote the Bible? (laughs) I really thought I left more space this time. There are 40 different authors Over the course of a thousand years, of course, in various geographical locations, diverse cultural contexts, and yet all the Bible tells one story. It all points to a redeemer. It all points to a God who is sovereign, who is almighty, who is gracious, who is good, who is kind, who is just, all of that. And the word Bible itself is from the Greek biblos, also the Latin word, all means book. So when you think of Bible, it's really a book. So a couple of people have hit on this already, but the word that we use when we talk about what books belonged in the Bible is the word canon, not a large gun on wheels, right? That's two ends, but one end is what books belonged in the Bible. In other words, it's a, a standard or a rule. You, would, you literally use it like a, a reed would be straight, right? And you would compare something to see if it's straight or not. All you guys in the building trades, right? You have like levels and stuff. Make sure things are straight. It's the same idea, right? You'd compare it as a rule or a standard. So that's what it means. Not a gun on wheels. And we talk about the canon of Scripture. Some myths. Joe Rogan famously has a clip going around the interweb saying that Constantine wrote the Bible. Which I think... <laughs> Joe is good at what he does, but uh, he's terrible at biblical history, apparently. Constantine did not write the Bible. And our friend Dawkins, again, says the four Gospels made it into the canon arbitrarily. That's a big one, because people will say, well, the church just decided what books were supposed to be in the Bible. And they made it that way so that they created this Jesus and this religion that they wanted you to follow, right? It was not arbitrary at all. 
And so we can definitely push back against that. The church recognized the canon. They didn't create the canon. That's a really important part. The church itself said, they looked at the books and they said, this is not something that we're thinking it belongs in here, right? They've discovered, they've recognized it as for what it is, like First Thessalonians said, the word of God. J.I. Packer has a great quote. The church no more gave us the New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity. Newton did not create gravity, but he recognized it. Same concept there. So let's talk about a couple things really quickly with the canon. The Old Testament canon, the books of the Old Testament. Again, we could say, we could go through, if, you ever, if you're doing your chronological read, right? How many times are you cruising through the Old Testament it says, and God said, and God said, and God said. All right, so that's internal evidence right there, that that is the word of God. But there's a couple other things. In 250 BC, uh, there was the Septuagint, which uh, a bunch of scholars got together to translate. What was the Old Testament written in? Anybody know? Hebrew. Hebrew. And at the time, around 250 BC, we had the Hellenization of everything going on. So there's a lot more Greek speakers than there was Hebrew speakers. And so they said, wow, we need the Old Testament in Greek. So they translated it, and it was called the Septuagint. Yes, ancient Hebrew. With, yeah, it's a mess, believe me. So that's one of the first ways we knew what was in the Old Testament canon. But we also had things like the Masoretic texts, which were Hebrew nerds, Hebrew scholars that meticulously preserved all of the copies of the Jewish scrolls, and that was in the 5th century A.D. Later on, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they were always saying, wow, I wonder how accurate these things were from the 5th century, and they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, and they compared them, and they were like dead on. And so the Masoretes were, were completely meticulous in the way they preserved the Old Testament writings. Right? The point really for us is that the Old Testament canon was settled by the time of Jesus. There really wasn't a question about what books were in the Old Testament and what books weren't in the Old Testament. It wasn't a big deal. Right? So when you're talking to somebody about you know, what books are where, like, try to get that out of the way. They're, they're not talking about the Old Testament because we have all of Judaism to help back us up on this one, right? That says these are the books in the Old Testament. They might have some others that they, different sects might, different, uh, different groups might uh, recognize, but the Old Testament canon was very solid very early on. What about the New Testament canon? The New Testament canon started with preserved oral tradition. Oh, wow, that's small. Sorry, guys. It started with preserved oral Tradition. What's an oral tradition? It's not going to your dentist on a regular basis. Thank you, Ken. What did you say? People passing down stories, right? What happens when people pass down stories, right? We all have our Uncle Bob that's like the fish was this big, and then next Thanksgiving the fish was this big, and then it was so big, and then it was two fish. What? Whoa. Len Baxter is the master of oral tradition storytelling. Yeah. The danger is what? That it's like, well, okay, but it's oral tradition, right? Famously, I think it was Airman who said, it's like a game of telephone. You're just going to pass it down. It's going to get distorted from person to person to person. You ever play that game telephone in youth group or whatever, and it's just like by the time the message gets to the last guy, it's like nothing even close to what it was said in the beginning. That's what the atheistic opponents would be saying about the New Testament. It's like, no, it's passed down orally, forget it. You're not going to remember anything. But we would say it's preserved by two things. It's preserved by eyewitnesses, number one, which we'll talk about, and it's preserved by the Holy Spirit, number two. It's preserved by eyewitnesses, people who were actually there and saw these things. And don't forget, the Holy Spirit is in, not only inspiring Scripture, the Holy Spirit's preserving Scripture. That's why we have it today, right here, because God himself made sure that we would have it and preserved it in the church, right? So as the disciples or, and the apostles began to die off and began to be martyred, maybe they retired, whatever they did, they needed a written record. The gospel was spreading, churches needed to be fed with the word, they also needed to counter heresy, 
And so they knew they needed to begin writing these things down. And the early church had a couple tests for whether or not something was belonging in the canon. And the first was apostolic. Was it apostolic? Was it, was it written by or was it closely connected to an apostle? What's an apostle? I always forget that. Come on, folks, hang with me. Yes, Ron. <laughs> Perfect, thank you. No, uh, you're wrong, because T.D. Jakes calls himself a bishop, I believe, not an apostle. Right, so an apostle literally means sent one, so someone who is sent from Jesus himself, and, and Ron's attempt at humor is received and acknowledged. There are people that actually call themselves apostles today. There are no more apostles today. There's no one that's been sent by Jesus himself, right? The new apostolic reformation, right? It's a dangerous thing. And so no, no, just no. No to all that. So yeah, it, it has to be written by or tied closely to an actual apostle. Number two, it has to be orthodox. In other words, is it recognized, does it recognize an understanding of the gospel and other core doctrines? There again, is it saying the same thing that all the other books are saying? Or is it saying something weird, right? If all the other books say justification is by faith alone in Christ alone, right? And then this other book comes along and says that justification is by good works. It's like the old Sesame Street song, like one of these things doesn't look like the other. Like, you know that right away. So it doesn't belong in the canon. And then lastly, uh, Catholicity, or, or that term Catholic that we use and what comes up when we say the creeds, right? Not Roman Catholic, but the true sense of the word universal. Is it universally recognized as both apostolic and orthodox? Do, do, all, do all, consistently throughout churches, do they say, yeah, this is a solid, this is a solid letter. This is God's word. It hangs together. It's consistent. So these were the kind of things, as they were looking at these letters, right, as they were looking at all these manuscripts, is it authentic or not? Is it apostolic? Is it orthodox? And is it Catholic? Do you think that there was a lot of other letters roaming around, a lot of other manuscripts roaming around at that time? Yeah. I mean, it was Jesus came, he turned the world upside down, Right? When something big happens here in our culture, you're always going to have like 10 to 15 to a million copies or wannabes of whatever that thing is, right? Same thing applied in the Greco-Roman world. There were plenty of people trying to cash in on this. There were plenty of people writing their own versions of what happened that they may not have been around, right? And they said, no, here's my contribution to Scripture. And they would go through these tests and they'd say, nice try, but no. That's not what happened, right? So there were definitely people that were uh, claiming to be followers of Jesus and writing their own accounts or claiming to be his disciples and saying all that, and the church would compare it to everything else that they knew to be true, and they would say, no, you're wrong, you're crazy. If you ever read any of the Apocrypha or any of the other gospel accounts, Gospel of Thomas, who remembers that book by, uh, what was it, David Brown, Gospel, what was it called? Gospel of Thomas or something like that. Um, but yeah, crazy stuff in there. Absolutely crazy stuff. Entertaining read if you want to. But we also had some early lists that tell us the books of the canon. We had the Muratorian canon, uh, which was from 190 AD, which told us most of the New Testament books. Again, 190, we're talking second century here. And so right away, when people say, no, Constantine did it for, it was the council of blah, blah, blah in the 5th century, we can say, no, actually we had it in the 2nd century before that. Church fathers, again, verified it. We saw that in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. And then we did have the councils. By that time, we did say, okay, let's just stop fighting about all this. Let's get it down on paper. So we had the councils of Hippo and the councils of Carthage, 4th century. That's where they said, okay. This is it. This is legit. This is the actual. What we've all been saying for 400 years now, we're putting it down on paper. And this is what the church then says. This is, this is what we recognize as the canonical books. Questions, comments, 
on the cannon. All right. So when you're talking to somebody about... Yes, Bob, sorry. Yeah, so what we have as 1st and 2nd Corinthians is really probably 2nd and 3rd Corinthians, right? Because we read, what you're saying is true, we read 1st Corinthians and Paul's referring back to another letter that he wrote them, right? His previous letter. And so what happens if we suddenly find the real 1st Corinthians, right? And I think, again, nothing would stop it from going through those apostolic tests, maybe for the heck of it, but... Um, the common Orthodox historical church would say the canon's closed and that we have everything that we need. It's not going to add anything that we don't already have. And it certainly is not going to contradict it. And, and what we have is these letters too, right? We, Paul definitely wrote more letters. Paul definitely wrote little snippets of things, uh, other things, but these were the ones that the Holy Spirit in his supreme wisdom, said this is what the church needs for life and godliness, right? You, you would find something just like maybe you would find another non-canonical book that might help you understand what's in here, but it's not really going to add anything new, and it's certainly not going to contradict anything that's already in here. So I guess the bottom line is, why would we need to? Why would we need to call it Scripture? Because canon's closed, we have it. If God wanted us to have it, we would have it. We would find it. Yeah, the kings. Yep, yep. Yep. And as we'll talk about in a minute, there's thousands and thousands of copies of our manuscripts, right? So if there was another letter, God would have at least let us find one or two or ten of them, right? But when we're having these conversations about Scripture and the problem of Scripture, right, people really aren't going to care about the Old Testament. And they might not really care about the epistles or revelation or something where 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 the bullseye is going to be is going to be the gospels and that's the question is are the gospels themselves reliable and so when you're talking to somebody about scripture really try to steer them and they're probably going to want to know themselves because jesus is the center of everything and so the gospels are the ones that gives us the stories of jesus and so that's the big question, right? That's the bullseye question here. Are the Gospels themselves reliable? And again, here's the argument. The Gospels are not reliable because they began as oral traditions and decades later they were written down and therefore contained countless mistakes and fabrications. That's the argument that you will hear. They're not reliable because they began as oral traditions and decades later, they were written down and therefore contained mistakes and fabrications. What do we say to that? Caleb. Yeah, that's actually dead on the money. That decades after the events, that's pretty good. And that's not different. You look at a history or biography of Nero or something, that sucker's going to be written a lot longer than decades later after Nero walked around. Yeah, Ro and Ron, the power couple. Right. So there's a mountain of evidence of what is consistent and true and lines up with the Scripture as opposed to a tiny molehill of things that are not. So again, it's pretty easy to spot what is, what is consistent and what is not. Right. Right. 
Yeah. If they found Jesus' body, you would think that there'd be 11 billion pieces of literature that would say that somewhere in history, but no. Yeah, photographs, yeah. Ron, Ron. We have an embarrassing number of manuscripts, thousands and thousands and thousands of them, right? We're going to talk about why that's important in a second, right? But again, this is the argument. You will run into this, right? And you will see this all over the place if you push on the Bible. They're going to say, no, they're just oral traditions. They're full of mistakes. They're full of made-up stuff. They're written down decades after Jesus walked the face of the earth, right? Two responses, or a couple responses, we could say, that cultures at that time used controlled oral traditions to ensure the accuracy of their accounts. This is what culture did. They didn't run and write things down. They didn't walk around with their iPads, and they didn't film everything with their phones, right? They told these stories over and over and over again, and it was not just a game of willy-nilly when they told their stories. You were not allowed to modify the stories, you had to stay within the actual facts of the stories. There was controlled oral traditions. People told the stories. The stories were preserved and actually controlled. This wasn't just the Bible. This was everything at that time period. Again, a biography of Nero or other secular proverbs, parables, poems, war accounts, conflicts. You can't just make up your own facts. Why? Because the whole culture was an oral tradition. And if I'm making up a fact of the battle of whatever, and Dan was there, Dan's going to say, that wasn't how it went, because I was there, right? And there's a lot of people that would try to get glory from some of these things, but they controlled the oral tradition. And who was controlling those oral traditions were the eyewitnesses. And so the second response is eyewitnesses to the gospel events were the ones controlling the accuracy of the accounts. They were controlled by the eyewitnesses. It's like, okay, you didn't believe me Jesus did that? Go ask Rhoda. She was there. She's right over there. Go ask her, right? And she's the one telling me. She's, she'll be in the back going, nope, that wasn't quite right. You missed that up. He wasn't there. Yeah, Frank. Yep, you're stealing my thunder. Preach it, baby. Come on. Go ahead. Acts chapter 1. Acts 1, 22, when they're talking about who they're going to replace, right? Some of the men have accompanied us during the time, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. One of these men must be with us as a witness to his resurrection. So when they're picking the replacement for Judas, who just recently committed suicide, right? They said, we have to pick a witness. They have to pick an eyewitness. So absolutely Yeah. Uh, Luke chapter 1, his dedication to the great Theophilus, right? Inasmuch as many have taken to, undertaken to compile a narrative of these things that have been accomplished among us, right? You can even see that holding true with what we just said right there in the first verse, right? A lot of people have, have tried to undertake a narrative of these things. So now people are, write this down. A lot of people have tried that. Just as those who were from the beginning were, watch this, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word who have delivered them to us. And so, yeah, eyewitnesses were the ones that were controlling this, right? And think about it. It's common sense. If they're starting to die off and the church is starting to grow, they're going to need to write it down because they're not going to be around to ask anymore. And the church needed these things. Each gospel was written by an eyewitness. Luke was uh, also the, the traveling companion of Paul, and Mark was widely recognized as the scribe for Peter. So even if those guys weren't around as part of the 12, right, they were, again, apostolic in the sense that they were directly connected to one of the 12. 
So it was, it was preserved. There's um, Brant Petrie, who is a really good scholar, wrote a really good book that I will give away next week. Here's a good quote. The earliest Christian writings outside the New Testament are completely unambiguous and totally unanimous about who wrote the four Gospels. Even more, some of these writings came from authors who either knew the apostles themselves or who were only one generation away from the apostles. He's like, the early church didn't argue about this. They knew who wrote the Gospels, and there was nothing to fight about. And last, but certainly not least, we can respond firstly that we said that uh, cultures used controlled oral traditions for the accuracy, and they were controlled by the eyewitnesses. But then third, we have thousands of copies of the New Testament manuscript as proof of their reliability. Thousands of copies, more than any other classical work in that period. By far, it's embarrassing how much we have. So we have thousands of copies. So if we have thousands of copies, what happened to the originals? <laughs> yeah, stuff doesn't last forever, yeah. right? If it's one piece of paper, right? Had to, be had to be copied. But also, if it had to be copied, right, um, don't people make mistakes when they copy something? So therefore, people are right. The Bible is full of mistakes because they copied it so many thousands of times, so there must be mistakes in there. Are there mistakes in those manuscripts? You both said nothing important. It's actually very true. There is nothing important. But there is. I think we can acknowledge that, right? We need to understand that there were differences. Of course, if everybody in this room writes down the book of Luke, right, we're going to have some words that are messed up. We're going to skip a word. We're going to do something else. Not to mention those people who were doing it at that time were doing it in terrible conditions with terrible pens and feathers and ink on terrible papyrus or you know, the, the predecessor of paper and all of that stuff, right? So yeah, there is. One guy said, if you, ever, if you ever wonder if there were actual discrepancies in the New Testament, just see what happens when somebody stands up on a Sunday morning and reads Scripture, right? Happens to the best of us. We're reading it and we skip words or we mess words up or, you know, something else happens. But we've got to define terms, something that keeps coming up time and time again. It's not a mistake it's a, a discrepancy in the copy. It's a copying error. It's a copying uh, discrepancy, we would say. But it's not a mistake. A mistake is saying that you're writing something that didn't intend to be there, and therefore that would affect the doctrine. And that's not the truth. Ronald. I'm familiar with him. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. There's different terms. We've got to remember that some terms are not mutually exclusive, right? We've seen it before in um, the idea of uh, the different gospel accounts. Like I'm preaching through Matthew, but I'll bring in something else that Luke says to add color. But Matthew didn't say that. Does that mean Matthew's wrong? No, it just means that Luke had some different things. We all have different ideas of, of what we see sometimes, right? If you go home tonight and your spouse wasn't here and uh, you asked who was here, she asked who was here, he asked who was here, you'd say, uh, well, Cheryl Fieldhouse was here, right? And then somebody else says, well, Bob and Cheryl Fieldhouse was here. Well, did the first person get it wrong? Well, no, they just didn't mention Bob. Maybe they like Cheryl better or something. I don't know. <laughs> that kind of thing happens when you're writing stuff down too, right? Doesn't mean it's wrong. That's why we have another book that tells us that, yes, Bob and Cheryl were both at the meeting of the early church of Highlands in the year of our Lord, 2022 AD. See, you're forever memorialized now in that, right? That's why you signed the sheet. Yeah, absolutely. There's one common refrain that says that there are more discrepancies in the New Testament manuscripts than there are words themselves. And that's actually true. There are more differences 
There are more things that they can write down that are different or mistakes or discrepancies than there are actually the words themselves. But just do the math, right? If you have 20,000 copies, right, and you multiply every little thing where this Greek word was supposed to be that Greek word, but apparently we got that wrong and mixed that up, do the math. It's going gonna, it's gonna to flow out. But this is what uh, theologians call textual criticism. They lay all this stuff out. They lay all of the gospel of Matthew out, all of the fragments, right? And they go through line by line by line. And they say, okay, well, this says this. This seems wrong, but I've got a thousand manuscripts that say this. And I've got two manuscripts that say that. So which do you think is right? right? And then they end up going with that. But you guys both said something really important. None of those differences, the thousands and thousands of differences, or variants is the official name, affect any core doctrine at all in the gospel. It has nothing to do with justification by faith. It has nothing to do with the deity of Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with how we're saved or who God is or anything else like that. And so sometimes it helps when you're talking to somebody, you could admit, like, well, sure, there are differences between the gospel. Like, they think they got you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't affect the gospel. Or it doesn't affect who Jesus is. Also, side note, it's always good when somebody says there are mistakes in the Bible. Ask them to name one because 99% of the time they don't know. And then the other 1%, you can easily kind of say, well, really? That's the mistake, right? Matthew says there were two donkeys and Luke says there was one. Like, what does that have to do with anything? Somebody had their hand up over here. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. The Masorites. Yeah. Definitely. It is. Yeah. And so in the in the Greek text that I have upstairs, when I'm preaching through a New Testament book, I know every single variant. That is in all of the manuscripts that exist. And I can look at them and I can say, are these important or not? We know them all. That's the other point. It's not like it's like people are still discovering. We know them all. We know the variants. And we can say it's not really important. It's not important at all. Side note, if you're uh, interested anymore in the uh, New Testament reliability of the Gospels, I did a whole blog series on that if you wanted to catch up on that. If just, you know, you couldn't get to sleep one night or something. All right, so what does this mean for us as we land the plane here? So what? What's the big so what? The reliability of God's Word is the basis, again, for making and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. If, if, this, if this isn't reliable, if the Bible is not true, we're done. Like, stop looking for a new building. I'm going to go back to corporate America or something. I don't know what I'm going to do, but it's it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But it's also the basis for making and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. And let's look at a couple of passages really quick as we close. Um, in making disciples of Jesus Christ, we have an account of a wonderful godly woman named Lydia in her conversion. In 1614 of Acts one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to pay attention what was said by Paul. We see the Holy Spirit. Anybody been saved, like just sitting in church, hearing the Word of God preached, or reading the Word of God? Melanie and I, I think that's a big part of our testimony, is just actually reading the Word of God, and then it clicks. And so if this isn't reliable, then why does it do what it does in, in making disciples? There was another guy, uh, Tatian or Tatian, I'm not sure how that's said, but a second century philosopher who was converted. And he said, I was led to put faith in these scriptures by the unpretending cast of the language, the inartificial character of the writers, the foreknowledge displayed in future events, and the excellent quality of the precepts. And so... People have been converted by reading the Bible since it was the Bible. But also maturing, and this is really for us who are here, right? 
not only are we making disciples, but we're maturing disciples. And that goes back to the Bible being sufficient, right? We really don't need anything else other than the Bible to grow in holiness because the Bible is the Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. And so in those moments maybe where we kind of feel stalled in our sanctification or where we're growing or where we're convicted or where we're discouraged or whatever else, church, this is when we need to renew our, our faith in the Word of God for what it is and dive into the Word of God. So many times maybe it's a knee-jerk reaction when we need to grow and it's like, I need a book or I need a podcast or I need to, you know, something. those things could be helpful. I'm not downplaying those things. But first and foremost, we need the Word of God. And it tells us that it gives us everything we need for life and godliness. So not only does it make disciples, it matures disciples. So thoughts, comments, questions, disparaging, encouraging remarks. Uh, I've got some books to give away. Okay. Yes. <laughs> the fireman's bible the what yeah yeah so different versions that come out right i think first and foremost we kind of have to admit that unfortunately the underbelly is is the christian publishing industry right they're going to try to make money on these things even if it is the word of god where they're going to sell different variations of the Bible, different devotional versions of the Bible. All that may be well and good, but they're still trying to sell products too. Um, but when it comes down to things like the message translation or when you're changing, um, and CSB does it. CSB doesn't change the genders, but it adds, like when it says brothers, they'll add brothers and sisters and continue, right? Just to kind of say that, you know, it's not... It's not just men, it's men and women, right? But if you're going to go ahead and straight change the gender, that's something that we can verify by looking at the Greek and say, well, that's not what's in here, right? And that gets a little bit into the translation philosophy. A book like The Message or the New Living Bible or stuff like that or different translations that might come out, they're not literal translations. They're not word-for-word -word translations. They're paraphrase. So they'd read the Greek and they would look at it and they'd say, if they started with Greek at all, and they would say, the gist of that is this. And they would write it. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it certainly makes things easy to understand, right? It, it may not, I, well, it's not. It's not a good Bible for studying or, you know, that sort of thing. But sure, if you're, if you're coming, if you're new to the faith and you're reading, again, I don't, yeah, people go nuts about Bible translations, right? I mean, don't talk about the King James only people. We'll just, just they'll burn this place to the ground. <laughs> so we got to remember that the Bible is, is inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? It wasn't written in English, and, and we get as close as we can with our translations, but we can't get hung up on the actual translation itself. But what's behind that? Right? So can a New Living Bible preach the gospel and, and point to Jesus and our need for salvation? Ob yeah, obviously. You got saved, right? So yeah, um, it's probably not something you want to continue reading as a mature believer, right? Maybe every once in a while you go back there and you see how it kind of phrased something, but you, know, you don't stay eating um, macaroni and cheese and Cheerios every day, except for, you know... <laughs> You grow, you grow into more solid food and bigger things. So, you know, there may not be anything wrong with those things, but it may not be the healthiest diet, right? And then some of them, let's be sure, they're going to be flat out wrong. Like, I, I never Googled it, but I'm pretty sure there's got to be like a transgender LGBTQ Bible out there or something. You know? Yeah. And again, you just got to look at that and be like, well, that's just flat wrong. And we can tell it's flat wrong from the Bible itself. Yeah. <laughs> but I will say that English is the word for 
English is a very clunky language. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in the Hebrew, there's, there's, it's very hard to get a one-to-one -one translation. The Greek sometimes, too. Very thick words. Um, like last week, we were talking about the word uh, chesed from Psalm 36, which is all over the Psalms. God's steadfast love. It's like, well, it's a million words in English. Like, it's hard to nail one down that, you know. So, yeah, it's important to know that, too. Ro. Historicity. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we find those artifacts that verify the Word of God. There was one when we were in Israel in the old city of David where they actually found a coin or something that literally named, I think it was David's personal assistant or something. That, you know, it's just like some obscure, crazy reference to the Old Testament that was only mentioned once, and they found something that said it. And they're still, to your point, they're still finding stuff every day. Israel's a really hard place to do construction, because when you're building and then you hit artifacts, everybody's got to stop and you got to call in the nerds and everybody goes home and, you know, so somebody else had their hand up. Door. Yeah. So the Catholics, as far as the Apocrypha and different, uh, different gospel accounts, it's really a response to the Reformation in a lot of ways, right? Because they were fighting back against justification by faith. They were fighting to justify some of their things. Some of their things like purgatory, it's not in the Bible. It's in the Apocrypha or it's in the, the false gospels, right? So they have to have something to kind of add some sort of legitimacy to what they're claiming. But it's not on the same level of Scripture, in that. So, why they still have it? Uh, there are other denominations that have it. Uh, Episcopal churches, for example, would probably have the Apocrypha in it as well. Um, they might say it's not at the same level of Scripture. They might say it's just for church history or other reading, or they might. So, there's a bunch of different reasons. Um, but again, that goes more towards the Roman Catholic philosophy on Scripture in and of itself. Like, it doesn't matter anyway because they don't buy into sola scriptura. So even if it's anything of the main uh, canonical gospels, they're going to say, yeah, that's fine, but also it's the church that gives birth to the Bible, which we would say, is, and the reformers said that's absolutely wrong. That's backwards. The Bible gives birth to the church. The Holy Spirit's the one that wrote the Bible. So, so the Catholics then, it, 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 it touches their larger philosophy that it's not just, Scripture's not the highest authority in the church. It's Scripture and church tradition. It's Scripture, church tradition, and the Pope, and other things. And so, in a way, it doesn't really matter. They just, it's probably part of their tradition that they lump in there. Yeah, it stems from their, their philosophy on it. Yeah, Caleb. The Bible, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, that the other classical works of that time period that people just kind of accept as true, right? Because maybe a work by Homer doesn't really tell me how to live my life, right? The Bible does, so I don't like that, so maybe I have to find some way to discredit that. Yeah, Ro? I was just 
both of those texts could be used to go under the activity of yeah. scrutiny that the Holy Scripture so realistically what God says here is this is pure truth you can put it under any regime of scrutiny you want to it Jehovah's Witnesses same deal You can't, you can't uncover anything that would yeah. cast a, a shadow on the truth of it. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. True. Yep. It's all buried there. Ronald. Joseph Smith said you could have 30 wives, right? <laughs> Joseph Smith is not correct. Okay, a couple book giveaways as we land the plane, both written by one of my uh, professors, Dr. Timothy Paul Jones. A nice man, had him for a bunch of classes. But this one, I'll give away this one first. Uh, this one's called Why Should I Trust the Bible? And it's a very short but very accessible book. And, and a lot of the stuff we were talking about tonight is in here. Uh, why is it so difficult to believe? Are the Gospels historically plausible? What books belong in the Bible? How much should I trust? So a short Bible, a short book on why should I trust the Bible. Takers? Don't be shy. Go into Caleb. And the second one, how we got the Bible. This one is, thank you, sir. This one has pictures and charts, also written by Dr. Jones. I could never call him that in class because I always thought it was like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Dr. Jones. Excuse me, Dr. Jones. Oh, you have that one. So it answers the question how we got the Old Testament, how we got the New Testament, and how the Bible made it from manuscript formats to you. So good book. Good even little like tabletop kind of book. Anybody? Any takers? Everybody's all shy and bashful. Yeah, Carol? Very good. Alrighty, thank you guys for hanging in. I know it was warm, and, uh, but it's summer, and we're together, and we're talking about the Bible. So, hope you found it helpful. Let me uh, pray for us. Father, I thank you that we can be together, and we can look at some of these things and think about uh, what others are saying about the Bible and how we can respond, but also in that, Lord, how we can have confidence in the Bible being uh, what you say it is. So, thank you. Uh, for the way that you have, of course, inspired your word, but also preserved and protected your word. Thank you for the way that we're allowed to read your word and preach your word freely in this country. And we pray that your word would do your work here in the making and maturing of disciples. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.